This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, everyone will be aware of protests in China. They are nationwide, which is very unusual. Well, well, in 17 Chinese cities, there have been 23 demonstrations. Thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, are involved in this. These protests were triggered by a deadly fire last Thursday in a place called Urumqi, which is the capital of the far west region of Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs and other ethnic groups live and live in pretty dreadful conditions. The blaze killed at least 10 people. Another nine or 10 were injured in an apartment where they were locked down because of the regime's zero COVID policy, a policy with which the leader, Jinping, is closely associated. It's only six weeks or five weeks since he won a third term as president of the Chinese Communist Party, which is effectively perhaps him being president for life. Now, China is such a huge factor in the world that we thought we'd get somebody who really knew the place. And we've had Ian Williams talk to us before. He's the author of Fire of the Dragon, which is a book subtitled China's New Cold War. Ian also worked for Channel 4 News, based in Russia and Asia for a total of 14 years. Then he joined NBC as Asia correspondent from 2006 to 2015. He was based in Bangkok and in Beijing, and he reported from all across China, a country he knows very, very well. He's also won an Emmy and a BAFTA award. Ian, thank you very much for joining us. This is a very rare event. People are saying not since Tiananmen Square in 1989, when students were massacred when they protested for freedom, has there been so much dissent on the streets. Is that accurate? Good to join you, Eamon. I think it is. Protest in itself is not unusual in China in the sense that there has there are regularly small localized outbursts um, which have local reasons behind them. But I think what makes this so unique and so threatening to Xi Jinping is its its sheer geographical spread. 
18, 17, 18 different cities um, from Urumqi in the West all the way through to Shanghai, Beijing, Nanjing, Guangzhou, and also the sheer variety of people that have been involved in these protests. Um, from migrant workers, you, you saw the upheaval at the iPhone factory, yes. iPhone City, as it's called, such a massive production plant, through to university campuses in Beijing and Shanghai. So it's from migrant workers, factory workers, students, the urban elite, the sheer range of people that have been involved in these protests and their ge geographic spread is, I think, what makes it so threatening. And at the same time, Xi Jinping appears to have underestimated the extent of the frustration and the anger at his zero COVID policies. Yes, and he will be, I'm sure, concerned that he is the person most associated with the zero COVID policy. And he has been, as it were, named and is identified as the person enforcing this policy and imposing it on the people. It is. I mean, he is very, it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing. I mean, he is the one that has described zero COVID as being a battle against the virus and defeating the virus as being, he's uh, using you know, the language of the Cultural Revolution, that this is a war, a battle against the virus. And it's very closely associated with him personally. Now, he will try and um, shift the blame. We're already seeing this, blaming local authorities for being too zealous in the way they've imposed lockdowns or mass testing. And then, of course, the dark hand of foreigners is, is bound to be wheeled out. It always is when these things happen. Blame somebody else, blame agitators from outside China. But it just doesn't wash, and it, it, it won't wash with the people involved. Um, and it is dangerous for him. And the protests, particularly on campuses, have named him, demanded his resignation, demanded the party's resignation, neither, of course, which will, will happen. But you know, pe people associate this policy so closely with him because he has made it very personal. He and the party, um, as a, a symbol almost of Chinese virility against the bumbling West, yes. you know, this, you know, we're going to defeat this virus. And of course, most people have already concluded it really can't be defeated in, a, in any meaningful sense. Um, you know, you have to, in, in, in some way, shape or mean, learn to live with it. And, uh, you know, he can't really escape responsibility. And I think that's why it's so dangerous for him. Yes. And of course, a lot of people, particularly elderly people, have not been vaccinated or have not had boosters. The vaccine itself, the Chinese vaccine, the efficacy isn't as strong and proven as the Western vaccines. That is also a factor in the equation, isn't it? In terms of casualties, the fact that so many people who would be vulnerable are not vaccinated makes this potentially deadly. Very deadly. And I, I think that he is in a corner. He's in a very difficult corner, Xi Jinping, because of these low vaccination rates. It is remarkable, in a sense, when you think this is a regime that can pretty much force the people to do whatever it wants them to do. But it's been unable to um, get levels of vaccination among the most vulnerable that we've seen elsewhere in the world. I think this is partly because 
uh, they were never prioritized. China always prioritized remarkably younger people rather than the elderly. Uh, the elderly have been much more cautious, suspicious um, of the vaccine and of the intentions of the party. And you've got this situation where something like a third of over 60s have not been fully vaccinated, have not yes. had their boosters. And as you point out, the Chinese vaccines themselves, I mean, sure, they will, they help, they avoid some hospitalization, they um, have some effect, but they are not as effective and they don't last as long as, as the more sophisticated Western um, vaccines. I mean, the Chinese ones are based on inactivated virus. They're a very traditional form of, of vaccine. Their effectiveness is much less. But remarkably as well, Xi Jinping has stubbornly refused to import um, the, more, the, the more sophisticated foreign vaccines. His own scientists and technologists are trying to develop their own, but are still some way off from doing that. So all this makes China quite vulnerable. And although the numbers we've seen in the last few days, 40,000 cases, is low by international standard, and the number of deaths remains quite low. The potential for this getting out of control is enormous, taken together with the fact that China's health system is quite fragile uh, and could easily and quickly become overwhelmed. So, Yeah, that's confirmed, Ian, by the intensive care beds, which, as I understand it, there's 3.5 beds per 100,000 people. So that reflects a health service that barely exists. That's right. And it's very, it, it can be very expensive for ordinary Chinese people. And so they've gone down this path of mass quarantine, of, of, of lockdowns, they say more focused lockdowns than entire cities. Instead, you just have areas or, or apartment blocks um, or residential compounds um, or other facilities, but it is still draconian, and they they built a network of huge quarantine centers across the country. And I think what makes people so desperate and so frustrated is they can't see a way out of this. You know, where where and how does it end? Yeah, anybody familiar with COVID, we did a lot of. COVID stuff on this podcast and became very familiar. And at one point, I believed in zero COVID. The lady in New Zealand, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Ad Hearn, she believed in zero COVID. So did the Australians. The Australians had to back off and I had to back off very quickly. I mean, the World Cup pictures that are getting into China, Ian, show before they're censored, they show happy people on masks, not socially distanced, having a great time. That, 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 that must be somewhat annoying. It our, is, friend, I mean, our friend Xi. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on the on the zero, I think it wasn't unreasonable early in the epidemic, early in the pandemic, to believe in in zero COVID, especially when we didn't have effective vaccines. Um, it was. I think perfectly valid for for a number of countries across the world to go down that path of th of thinking let's let's keep this thing out completely but as it's spread and as the vaccines have become available yes. I think it's become a more untenable position but as, as you as you mentioned with the uh, the football I mean these have been quite remarkable images which have been picked up on social media in China the censors who are stationed at Chinese television 
uh, they always have a delay on live events. Live events. Right. Who knows? You might get a Tibet protest, <laughs> a Hong Kong protest. So they want to have a way of of eliminating that before it's broadcast. So even an ostensibly live event, and a lot of people are watching the football in China, will have a built-in delay so they can cut stuff they don't like. Yes. And what's been happening, according to eagle-eyed、um, social media users, is when they've cut away to joyous. Shouting crowds mingling together on the terraces, but unmasked, the Chinese censors have been cutting those pictures, or going back to slow mos, or going back to the players, or, or something completely random,、um, in order to prevent the the images of of, of happy maskless people. I mean, it's very clunky, it's very crude.、Um, Trying to give the impression, perhaps, that there is a world outside China which is equally as grim.、Um, yes, but all you're doing really is is highlighting your own failings. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Acast for twenty percent off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do.、It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. I want to ask you in a moment about a piece you wrote for the Sunday Times this week about iPhone City and Apple. But the headline says "Battle of iPhone City Show Xi is Losing the COVID War," and this thing of dissent it reminded me of Hu Jintao, who was Xi's predecessor. And who was removed from the seat next to Xi at the recent Communist Party convention, and very publicly 
kind of forced to leave his seat when he wanted to stay, and she sat there and wouldn't make eye contact with him. That suggested to me that his predecessor thought, perhaps, that nobody should get a third term and be president for life. But it also suggested that he was reflecting himself dissent that exists much closer to she than the streets. I think the, that that is certainly the case. It's always hard to identify where that dissent exists and how powerful it is. But I think that we can say without doubt that that, that Xi has made a lot of enemies in the system. Uh, he He's used the anti-corruption laws in order to, to get people who he regards as his opponents. And I think a lot of people... Um, will be looking at this very closely because she is very personally identified with, with, with zero COVID and will look at it as a way of possibly stirring things up. I mean, it's significant that today, of course, we've learned that Zhang Zemin has died, who is the immediate predecessor to Hu Jintao. And it, it, it's testament almost to the dark places that Xi is taking China that Zhang is being remembered with some warmth yes. and some nostalgia. I mean, he was hardly an angel. He was hardly a liberal. But a lot of economic progress was made under Zhang Zemin. Um, China advanced rapidly economically. And, of course, his was a far more co collegiate form of leadership, as it was under Hu. Yes. And there are always signals within China. There's always the subterranean things going on, and you have to sort of read the tea leaves at times. And I think the way in which Zhang is remembered over coming, the coming days uh, and the subtle signals that we see around that remembrance will be very significant and people will, will, will be poured over by China watchers as, as signs of oblique criticism of Xi. Yes, it's interesting too. I think you told us the last time we spoke to you, Ian, about Xi's family background. His father was a dissident. He himself was sent to the, the wilderness to prove himself. And he came to power with people believing that he might be a voice for a form of liberalism and a form of, however limited, freedom and, you know, that through business and trade, the West might find him palatable and he was maybe not so bad. That was a bad bet by anyone who made it. It was. And it's remarkable to look back and think that people were, I mean, I think he was a blank sheet in many respects. He was a rather colorless bureaucrat who came up through the Communist Party system without really offending any particular faction. And it made him acceptable to both. And it was always remarkable to me that outsiders, China watchers, who you thought would know better, were imposing almost their own wishes upon Xi Jinping with any, without any real evidence for, for, yes. for that. And I was in the Great Hall when he first emerged as leader of the party, when he was wheeled out in front of the press. And it was quite remarkable the way people were, were grasping at Sometimes the most bizarre things that he had done, he'd been to the States once or twice on a, a, a study visit, and this was seen somehow as pro-American. As, as pro um, and, and looking desperately for 
for, for ways in which they they could justify describing him as a reformer, but it really wasn't there at the time. He was married to a popular singer as well. Maybe that helped. <laughs> he was, and she was better known than him. That was a bizarre thing at the time yes. among the Chinese people. You'd go out and do uh, little interviews on the streets, and everyone had heard of his wife because she was a folk singer, but very few people had any idea who he was if they'd heard of him at all. I mean, people regarded the the maneuverings within the Communist Party as something that took place on a different planet. It was so far removed from their everyday lives. And they knew his wife, um, but they certainly didn't know him. Right. Let me ask you about this idea of the surveillance state. But let me ask first about this iPhone city where 200,000 workers labor away they live on site. It sounds like a terrible existence. Apple are up to their oxters in it, and they are very dependent on China. Although Tim Cook, their chief executive, says that they're moving away from that position. I mean, the conditions those people are living in and Apple's seeming dependence on China, how, how real is that? It's very real, and it's quite shocking that Apple has not sought to address this in a way that many other companies have. That particular plant in Shenzhou is is a colossal um, place. It's 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 enormous. I think originally they'd had three hundred, three hundred and fifty thousand people working there. Now Apple says there are two hundred thousand. It is a city. It's a city within a city. Yes. Um, it's pro- that one place produces half the world's iPhones. It, but Apple's dependence upon China goes far deeper. The, the authorities there help them build what is the world's most sophisticated supply chain. Um, Tim Cook has repeatedly says he believes privacy is a human right, but that sentiment tends to stop at the Chinese border. Yes. And he's been accused of kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party, whether that be in removing apps um, from the local app yes. store at the request of the party, storing Chinese users' data in China um, on servers which can be accessed by the authorities, and and being very reluctant to criticize, coming out with the standard phrase that, oh, we should be there, we need to engage by being there, we will improve things. I mean, that's really become a rather tired excuse now. Um, But most other companies, you look around and people are seeking greater resilience in their supply chains. They're looking to diversify where they get, where they source stuff from. But China remains heavily dependent, uh, sorry, Apple remains heavily dependent upon China. If 200,000 workers, if the COVID virus were to get in there it would be dramatic tragic it, i mean it, it got in there this is this is the root of the protests that we saw the often violent right. protests it, it it there was an outbreak there in october and they sought to impose strict internal controls within the plant limiting people to their dormitories uh, to the production line um, in an effort to both control the virus but maintain production in what is a vital time of the year for Apple. Um, that resulted in a mass walkout. In fact, the images looked more like a mass breakout with people scaling over barricades and walls. Um, the result was that 
tens of thousands, um, if if not more, workers simply left the job. And the, the, the plant is so important to the local authorities that they then launched a massive uh, recruitment drive that reportedly had 100,000 workers sign up to it. But when those workers arrived, it, it further exacerbated um, the, the conditions and the relations within the plant, which seems to have been the the trigger for the violence the week before last. Uh, but um, a, a remarkable place. And as you say, once you get COVID in somewhere like that, trying to eliminate it while maintaining production it be- became an impossible task and, 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 of course, triggered that backlash. And it's also, I suppose, worth pointing out that there's been a property crash in China. The economy has other problems. And this whole idea, Ian, of the surveillance state, now you know it better than almost anybody in the West. It really is Orwellian. It offers, promises very little. If it, if it were to be successful, as it appears to be, well, not this morning, but say six months ago, it's pretty shocking stuff, isn't it? The degree to which people's freedoms are curtailed and the degree to which people can be identified and what they're doing through their phones. This is a real experiment in Orwellian nation-building, shall we say. It, it is, and it, it's, it's really quite chilling, the extent yes. of it. And we are now seeing it being tested because the protesters that took to the streets, took to the campuses, are phenomenally brave because they will have been monitored. Cameras will have, have, have recorded their, their, their faces, the way they walk, um, they will be, uh, the authorities will be looking through these images. They'll be trying to identify people that took part in these protests. Yes. Already we've seen reports, there's been footage posted. Of, there was one particularly chilling s- set of footage of the police going down a carriage on the, sh- the, the Shanghai Metro, demanding telephones and checking the phones for yes. any evidence of people taking part in protests in terms of the images that are on those phones. They've also stopped people looking for the Telegram app, looking for VPNs, these apps that enable people to, to sidestep censorship. So the full force of the surveillance state is now being brought to bear to try and identify who took part in these protests and to try and stifle any further protests. It will be fascinating to see how that works out. And as I say, it does really un- underline the, the, the courage of, of those who took part. I mean, I I look at the surveillance state and shake my head in horror at what's the Orwellian, Orwellian beast that's being created. But then yeah. sometimes I also think, well, you know, there was a state called East Germany, which had an organization called the yes. Stasi. And of course, in 1989, or well, up to 1989, yes. they were regarded as the state of the art in terms yes. of surveillance. They were the ultimate surveillance state, and yet they imploded. Not yes. only did they implode, but they couldn't. E- they did. They didn't even predict their own demise. Yes, uh, and and so you know, ultimately, yes, this is a chilling surveillance state. 
But I think at the same time, somewhere like East Germany tells you that when people feel strongly enough and when your legitimacy is exhausted, uh, even the strongest surveillance states come under pressure. The problem, I suppose, is, and this is something Orwell foresaw, is technology and the possibility that you can be observed 24 hours a day. And that the combination of technology and ruthlessness on the scale shown by the Chinese Communist Party is what would deliver the ultimate victory to this. The book you've written, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, who's the enemy in this Cold War? Is it freedom or is it the United States? I think it's sometimes the I think it's almost easier to say who isn't the enemy. Right. Um, the, the Chinese Communist Party seems to be intent on making an enemy of just about everybody and anybody, um, particularly among liberal democracies. And a then bit like course, the British government, Ian. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. But then, but then Sorry it, for that. Then, then it turns around and accuses them all of victimizing Beijing. I mean, it's rem- it's remarkable stuff. But one one of the you know, the, the themes of the book is very much the you know, the multiple fronts upon which the party is pushing its interests from uh, the Himalayas, India grabbing land from Bhutan to the South China Sea to cyberspace to the Arctic. Yes. And really making the argument that while Western politicians debate about how best to describe this, is it systemic challenge, systemic rivalry, or multiple variations on that theme, trying to avoid the world the words cold war. Um no, but it's a little late for that. I mean, China's waging a form of cold war and has been for some time on you know on multiple fronts. A final question about a place like Shanghai which I just have an impression of it. Fun place, lots of entrepreneurial activity, nice restaurants, relatively free compared to other parts of the country. Am I dreaming? (laughs) Well, Shanghai has attitude. It was always regarded, when, when when I was in China, it was always a bit of a relief to get to Shanghai because Beijing was a more stifling political city. Whereas yeah. you got to Shanghai and it was a little bit more um, easy. It was a, a, a more enjoyable place to be. More stuff happened in Shanghai. The Shanghaiese had an attitude towards life and towards the authorities, which you didn't always find in Beijing. Yes, And I think that was one of the reasons why the backlash earlier this year against the draconian lockdowns in Shanghai um, was so severe, and and since then the authorities there have been more cautious about the way they've imposed lockdowns. They're still right. imposing them, but they're a little more focused than than they had been in the past. But certainly, I I think that under Xi Jinping, control is what matters, party control. Uh, but certainly, Shanghai has traditionally been a more freewheeling city and one with a, a good deal more attitude. Um, than Beijing, and and in that sense would probably be seen as as somewhat more threatening. Just a final question about how keenly Xi and his regime will be observing Putin, Ukraine, 
the West's response, NATO's response, and the antics of the British government, for example, how keenly they will be watching to see if the moment would be right for them to make a move on Taiwan. I think they'll be watching very, very closely. Um, the, the relationship between China and Russia is fascinating. I, China has not condemned the invasion of Ukraine. And the worldview of Xi is very similar to that of Putin. Mm. Um, both of them are um, re- regard the West as being in decline, as being an enemy. Um, both of them have grand visions of restoration of empire uh, and yes. reasserting a, a, a new global order. But I think at the same time, Xi will have seen the so far unity of the West in the face of Russian aggression, will have seen the sanctions, um, will have seen the, the military difficulties that that Russia has encountered um, against what on paper appeared to be an an inferior fighting force, the ability of a small country, resolute, determined, yes, not as well equipped uh, initially, obviously we have more Western weapons now going to Ukraine. And I think that China will draw lessons from that in terms of how it calculates its next moves on Taiwan. I would guess that in the medium term, uh, what we've seen in Ukraine uh, will 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 delay any yes. violent moves against Taiwan. But I do recognise that there are those who would argue to the contrary that in fact it might persuade Xi Jinping to step up efforts to to uh, get. Taiwan by force, especially when he's facing multiple other challenges and problems at home. And it, you know, it might be a useful way of, of um, distracting yes. attention. Okay, and we're very grateful to you for joining us today. I understand Ian Williams is the author of a very good book called The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. It's fascinating and chilling stuff. And we're very grateful to Ian, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.